Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Great to be seen by all of you who are joining us online. Uh, we welcome you. If you're a guest with us, we give you an extra special welcome. And uh, I just want to, you to know how much we enjoy having you in our service. Uh, I'm glad to be back in the pulpit after being gone a couple of weeks. Our family always goes to Florida for the first couple of weeks of July. The first week, it's our entire family, kids and grandkids. The second week, it's just Sandy and me. So... We always have a good time, but we're always glad to get back home. If you got a Bible, let me hear your pages turning to the New Testament book of Romans, and when you get there, find Romans chapter 9. We are working our way uh, chapter by chapter through the book of Romans in a message series called Unashamed. Uh, while you're turning there, let me just give you a couple of reminders. Now, I know you just heard about this on MPTV, but there's an urgent need here, so I'm going to reinforce it. We've got our, uh, Love your, our Love Your Neighbor event coming up this quarter, which is focused on back-to-school bash parties at all of our impact campuses. Now, we have a kind of an unusual or an orthodox multi-site model here at Mount Pleasant. We have our, our, our campus here in Greenwood, Mount Pleasant Christian Church, that is almost 140 years old. Uh, for 140 years, this church has been serving this community. But in addition, we have three campuses in uh, Indianapolis that all use the name Impact Christian Church. We have Impact Old Southside Christian Church, Impact Fairfax Christian Church, Impact Bethany Christian Church. And they're all having a back-to-school bash uh, for back-to-school weekend, and we need volunteers. We just haven't had a tremendous sign-up yet, and so we need you to do that, and we need you to do that today. Uh, you'll enjoy that. You'll, it'll, you'll be blessed. The Impact Campuses uh, are great, great ministries, and you will love uh, being exposed to them if you've never been, and so I would encourage you to do that. Also, just a reminder that I am leading a trip to the Holy Land in September of 2024, and all the details are worked out. My assistant, Marquetta Hilton, has all the information, including brochures that give you everything that you need to sign up and be a part, and if you've never been, I would encourage you to go. Uh, it will be the trip of a lifetime. As we turn our attention to Romans chapter 9, I want to just begin by telling you I have a little bit of an unusual message for you today. I hope you're not too disappointed. Romans chapter 9 is um, an interesting chapter in uh, the book of Romans because it creates strong convictions among different believers that can lead to pretty strong disagreements when it comes to interpretation among many believers. In fact, in his commentary on the book of Romans, William Barclay writes these words, this is the one passage we wish Paul hadn't written. That's a pretty bold statement. Now, on a personal level, I don't think that's a good way to reference Romans 9 Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And those words, all scripture, certainly includes Romans chapter 9. So let's talk about it for just a moment. The, re the reason why Romans 9 can be such a difficult passage is that it deals with three things that can create disagreement among believers. The first one is election what Christians call election. The second one is human freedom. And the third one is divine sovereignty. And if you're unfamiliar with the term election, then I'll give you a very, very simple definition. It's the belief that in eternity past, God chose or predestined who would be saved and who would not be saved. And Christians disagree about this because it's hard uh, for many people to understand a, a doctrine that would say that, would, that God would choose some to be saved and others not to be saved, not based on anything about themselves, but based solely on his sovereign will and purpose. 
And honestly, to be accurate, it's not just Romans chapter nine that deals with this reality. Paul deals with it on some level in Romans chapter nine, Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 11. Well, again, the last thing I want to do is disappoint you this morning or this weekend, but I'm not going to spend very much time talking about that for a couple of reasons. Well, there are more reasons than two, but I'm just going to give you two. First, because it becomes so easy to focus on the debate from Romans 9 that we end up missing the need and the responsibility and the opportunity to worship this great God who's revealed in such an amazing way in Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11. I don't want that to happen. Second, because of the urgency that that you have to feel when you look at these chapters in a larger context to a call of unity based on the gospel. Unity is what God wants, not division and disagreement. And so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about Romans chapter nine. Again, I apologize if that's disappointing to you. But I am gonna give you three very simple truths from Romans chapter nine that I don't think anyone can disagree with. This is not the outline for the message. I'm gonna do this quickly. You might wanna write these down somewhere. The first one is this. God can do what he wants to do. Somebody say amen to that. He can love who he wants to love. He can forgive who he wants to forgive. And God can condemn who he wants to condemn if that's what he chooses to do. God doesn't owe you or me or anyone anything. And anyone who would say that that's unfair should just read Romans 9.20 that says, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? What, or shall, excuse me, shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? God doesn't owe anything to anyone. He can do whatever he wants. Here's the second thing. A relationship with God is based on mercy. Romans 9, verses 14 through 16, Paul writes, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, or effort but on God's mercy. We've already seen in our study of the book of Romans through chapter eight, this clear truth that no one is saved and is in a right relationship with God based on their effort or based on their works, no matter how good they are. No one can earn a right relationship with God. That means we all need the mercy of God for salvation, which is a part of the grace of God. We're so thankful. Then the third thing I would tell you is this, when it comes to salvation, there is no grandfather clause. You know what that is, don't you? You know what a grandfather clause is. Say you want to put up a sign in front of your building and the city officials say, no, it's against city ordinances. And you say, well, the building right next to me has a sign exactly like the one I want to put up. Why Why do they get to have a sign like that? And they say, well, they put that sign up before the city ordinances were changed. So now they're what? Grandfathered in, right? That's not how it works with salvation. That's not how it works. And in Paul's day, there were a lot of people who believed they were grandfathered into a right relationship with God because they were Jewish and the Jews were God's chosen people. We talked about this in weeks past, what it meant for the Jews to be God's chosen people. But in Romans chapter nine and verse eight, Paul writes, in other words, it is not the natural children of God, excuse me, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. What What that means simply is this, Paul's saying that you have to have a personal faith in Jesus Christ in order to have a right relationship with God. Salvation is not about religion or heritage or anything like that. 
It's about a personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, having said that, I want to spend the rest of my time talking with you about something that is very personal to me, and I will hope that you just grant me some grace today to share from my heart. We'll get back on track in next weekend's message from the book of Romans. I'm sure that most, if not all of you know by now that I announced before I left for Florida that I was going to be retiring from my role here at Mount Pleasant and from full-time ministry at the end of June 2024, so just a little less than a year from now. That was on my mind as I began to read through Romans 9 for this message. And I've got to tell you that as I began to read through Romans 9 for this message, there was one thing in the chapter that really captured my heart more than anything else. And I'm sure this is because of where my heart and my mind have been for quite a while in trying to make this decision. And what it was that captured my heart and my mind was what Paul writes in the first five verses of the chapter. So if you've got your Bible open to Romans chapter nine and you're able, I'm gonna invite you to stand with me for the reading of the scripture. Now I don't have these verses up on the screen today and that's my fault, but I've got my normal NIV Bible, New International Version Bible, 1984 New International Version Bible, and I'm gonna read these words from Romans chapter nine, verses one through five, and you can just listen or you can try to follow along in your Bible if you are a good Christian and you have a 1984 NIV Bible in front of you. <laughs> Here we go. <clears throat> I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I'm sure that sounds a little bit confusing to you, but let me just tell you that when I read those words, the one thing that stands out to me is the passion of Paul. The passion of Paul. And his passion in those words is in, is, is in particular focused on his desire to see all men saved, in particular his brothers, the Jewish people. And I see that, that passion in particular in verses two and three where he writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. And, that, and those verses tell me two things about passion that are true about passion in anyone's life, and it doesn't matter what the source of the passion is. Number one, here's the first thing that's true about passion. It will keep you up at night. And the reason why I say that is Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. When I feel that way, and I'm sure you would say the same, when we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts, what do we do? We lay awake at night, don't we? As soon as our head hits the pillow, we think about the thing that is so burdensome to us and the thing that means so much to us and the desires we have related to that. And that's what was going on with the Apostle Paul. The second thing I see about passion, not only will it keep you up at night, but it will lead you to sacrifice. And I see that in his words when he says, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off 
from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. He was so burdened for the salvation of his countrymen who were so deceived in believing that they could somehow be right with God by their efforts and by their works that he says, I wish that I were cursed and cut off from Christ. I would trade my own relationship with Christ to know that they could be saved or that they would be saved. Passion is a powerful thing. There's nothing in my life apart from my love for Christ and my love for my family that I am more passionate about than the church. I'm talking about both the big C church, the church universal, and I'm talking about the local church. I have been in church from the time I was a baby in the nursery. I have experiences, memories from church the church that I was raised in that continued to anchor my life today. I have always believed, and I think I've said this before in the past, in many ways that it was a little local church that saved my life because it was filled with people who were kind to me, who loved me, who nurtured me, who saw something in me that I probably didn't see in myself. I think I told you the story before about how when I was just a boy about eight or nine years old, my mother sang in the choir at church, and some of you will remember this. We used to have Wednesday night service, and then Wednesday night service would be followed by choir practice. And my mother was at choir practice. I was in the auditorium. We didn't call it the worship center back then. We called it the sanctuary. I was in the sanctuary waiting for choir practice to get over, and my preacher came in. He was an old, older man at the time. Um, Seemed like he was like 80 or 90 years old, and I know that wasn't the case, but that's the perspective of a child. And he saw me there, and he came over to me, and he bent down, and he, and he took my face in his hands, and he reached over, and he kissed me on my forehead, which was really embarrassing to me as an eight or nine-year-old boy. And then he looked at me, and he said, you're going to be a preacher someday. And that memory has stayed with me my entire life because he was being prophetic in that moment. I met my wife, Sandy, in church. I can still remember, folks, the very first time I saw her. I still remember how she looked in those Wrangler blue jeans. <laughs> Both of my children were in the church nursery the very first Sunday after they came home from the hospital. My entire life has revolved around the church. And that's why it's my heartfelt belief that the church, the local church, is a place where lives can be changed, which means the local church is a place that has the power to change the world. But as I look at the church today, I understand, at least for many people, things have changed. There was a time in the world that I grew up in where being a Christian means you joined a church and you belonged to that church in a faithful way, in a responsible way. You were, con you were a consistent part of the life of that church. You were faithful in your attendance and your, your service and your participation. You discovered and used your spiritual gift to build up the other members of the church and strengthen them and serve them. You were committed to financial support of the church and you did that because you knew it reflected obedience to the instruction of the scripture and it gave the church the opportunity to financially make a difference in the community that they were in and the world. Church was a priority for your children because you knew how important it was for them to grow up grounded in the truth of God's word because you knew that would shape their lives for the rest of their lives. But things have changed today. I was doing some reading recently and the author made a statement that just stunned me 
He wrote, we talk a lot about a personal relationship with Jesus today, but that's not a biblical phrase because the Bible never talks about a personal relationship with Jesus. He went on to say, we talk in a positive way about having a personal relationship with Jesus as if that's the end all and be all of Christianity. But again, the Bible doesn't talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. It talks about a corporate relationship with Jesus. It isn't as if we are all individual people isolated in a relationship with Jesus. When you come to salvation, you are placed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And it's far better to say, I'm a part of those who belong to Christ than to say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. As if that in itself is some kind of self-contained and fully satisfying relationship when in fact it is not. Now, I got to tell you, be honest, I turned those words over and over again in my mind because I couldn't decide right away whether I agreed or disagreed with what he was saying. But in the end, there's a lot of truth to the point that this writer was trying to make. And I'll just give you some examples, and I'll preface this by saying I'm not trying to offend anyone. Well, that's not true. Every time I preach, I try to offend everyone, at least on some level. <laughs> Any good preacher would tell you the same thing. But if the majority of your church experience, I mean, be honest, if the majority of your church experience today happens on a computer or an iPad or an iPhone, in terms of the musical praise and worship or the teaching as you watch a service from Mount Pleasant or some other church or some kind of Christian ministry or program, then that's a problem in relation to what the New Testament teaches about being a part of the church. If your attitude toward church is that it's just one of many options that you have on the weekend, and all of them are equally valid, then that's a problem when it comes to what the New Testament teaches about the church. If you feel like you're in a stage or a season of life where you've done your time as far as church goes beyond just attending, so you don't need to be involved and you don't need to serve and you don't need to whatever it might be, that's a problem when it comes to what the New Testament teaches about church. If you come to church and you're more of a spectator than you are a participant, then that's a problem when it comes to what the New Testament teaches about church. The exception to that obviously would be if you're someone who is a genuine shut-in or who is literally unable to attend church in person because of some kind of a sickness or some kind of a vulnerability or someone who is away. But if you don't fall into those categories and your connection to church is something that I just described, how do you feel any genuine attachment to or participation with the church when you're isolated and independent like that. That's not the biblical model of church in the New Testament. I've always thought the Apostle Paul gave a powerful description of the local church in Ephesians chapter 4 when he writes beginning in verse 11, these words, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip 
his people for work of, works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now I read those words and I see an emphasis on people using their gifts to build up the body. And that's what this is, friends. This is the body, a portion of the body of Christ, a local body of Christ. I see an emphasis on unity in the body. I see an emphasis on spiritual maturity in the body. I see an emphasis in spiritual protection for the body. And I see an emphasis on responsibility in the body. And the key phrase is in the body, in the body. If we had time, we could do a deep dive in Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the body. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, he says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. In other words, all the parts are needed. Mine, yours, everyone's. A little later in verse 21 of that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. That's a ridiculous even thought that that would happen in a literal physical body. We understand that, but it's just as ridiculous when it happens in the body of Christ. As Christians, we are a body. We share a common life and the elements of a common life. We possess the same eternal newness in Christ. We are one in worship. We are one in ministry. We are one in service. We are one in responsibility. We are one in fellowship. And you can go on and on and on. But we're not one when you're not present. Think about the church in the New Testament. There was a shared connectedness in the New Testament church. And if you really take the time to look at the different elements or realities of the church in the New Testament, you would see, for example, that they knew their members because they counted them. And we think about the day of Pentecost when the very first church began, the church in Jerusalem. Peter stands up and preaches the very first gospel sermon about Jesus. The very first sermon after Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead, and returned to heavenly glory. The people says in verse 37 that the people were cut to the heart after they heard what he said. And they say, what shall we do? In verse 38, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sin, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day, about 3,000 people were baptized. And that was the beginning of the church. I don't know what the name was. Maybe it was Christ Church in Jerusalem. Maybe it was Mount Pleasant Christian Church in Jerusalem. I don't know. Not long after that, you get to Acts chapter 4, and yet Peter and John are, are put in jail for preaching the gospel and being bold, and the believers and the people were so emboldened by their faith and their strength that there's a little addendum to verse 5 that says, and the number of men in that first church grew to 5,000. So it started with 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. And then not long after that, the number of men, we aren't even counting the women and the children now, the number of men had grown to 5,000. We're in a chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Romans. When we get to Romans chapter 16, and I'm looking forward to that chapter, we're going to see at the end of the book that Paul recites the names. In fact, you can you can even look now. I won't, I'll give you a little out. You can even look now and see if you want to. 
And we'll see that Paul recites the names of all the people he was privileged to work with and minister with and serve with, something that he does on other occasions in his New Testament epistles. He names them by name. Some of the people that are, Paul mentions in his New Testament epistles by name are, are difficult people. Some of the people are wonderful people. But there's, there's an account. There's an account. There's an accounting. There's an identification of the people who are part of the body. When you become a Christian, you didn't just make a commitment to Christ. You made a commitment to his church because when you received the Holy Spirit, you were placed by the reception of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ that's represented all over the world in spiritual communities and fellowships and churches and bodies just like this one. And it's your responsibility to be a part of the church that you are committed to because you understand the significance of the church. And the significance of the church is that it was bought with the blood of Jesus. It was born, it was birthed, it was created through the shed blood of Jesus that we just celebrated and remembered in our time of communion. One of my favorite passages in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 20. There's a very emotional moment when the apostle Paul is leaving Ephesus and he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. It's very moving. In verse 28 of Acts, of Acts chapter 20, Paul says to them, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church which God bought with his own blood. The church is not like any other organization that you'll ever belong to. It's divine. It was purchased by the blood of Christ. And so the bottom line is your relationship to the church matters to God. My relationship to the church matters to God. And it matters to God for multiple reasons. It matters to God because of obedience. You can't read the New Testament and not see the emphasis on the local church. I, I have met in my life as a pastor, I've, I've been the pastor of three different churches. I've met people everywhere that I've lived who said, Pastor, I'm not interested in being a part of a local church. I, I don't want to be a member of the local church. I don't want to be committed to a local church. They, they can phrase it in a hundred different ways, but that's the bottom line. And here's my take on that. Even though, to be honest with you, I have never had much success in trying to convince people how wrong they were. But here's my take. There is no valid reason to not be a part of a local church if you are a genuine Christian. There's no valid reason to say, I don't want to join with these people. I don't want to love these people. I don't want to serve these people. I don't want to place myself under the authority of the godly men who lead these people. There is no valid reason to not be a part of a local church. In fact, the only reason you can really think of is disobedience. When you read the New Testament, you, you see that there were lists of believers in the book of Acts. There were letters that went back and forth between churches about different people. There were local assemblies that gathered for identification, for protection, for testimony, for witness. Uh, I, I go back again to Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. He said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which was bought with his own blood. Clearly, these men had a spiritual responsibility to shepherd a group of people, an identified group of people who made up a local church. Your connection to the church matters to God because of obedience. Your connection to the local church matters to God because of fellowship. 
the church is a place where we find fellowship. And there's so many different things I could say about this, but to me, the greatest New Testament evidence for the need for fellowship is found in all the many one another passages of the New Testament, primarily written by the Apostle Paul, not solely, but primarily. And the one other passages are instructions on how we're supposed to live with one another. And so the one another verses say things like love one another and pray for one another and encourage one another and forgive one another and comfort one another and, and on and on and on. And so the New Testament makes it clear that we are all, as believers, called to a mutual ministry of pouring our lives into each other's lives for spiritual benefit. That's the instruction of the New Testament related to the church. Think about what the Bible teaches us, what the New Testament teaches us about spiritual gifts. You know, when you become a Christian, so many different things happen. Your sins are forgiven. You're given the promise of eternal life. The Holy Spirit begins to dwell inside of you, takes up residence inside of you. And the Holy Spirit is literally God, God, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, the very presence of God living inside of you. And one of the things he does as he lives inside of you is he gives you a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. And a spiritual gift is a God-given channel through which the Holy Spirit ministers through you to other people. We all have spiritual gifts. You might not think you you, but you do. You have at least one. My experience is that most people have more than one. I am exercising one of my spiritual gifts right now as I'm talking to you because one of my spiritual gifts is the gift of teaching. I'm teaching you. I'm trying to instruct you from the scriptures. We have this responsibility to use our spiritual gifts to build one another up, which builds up the church. Well, you can make the argument that the best way to do that is through our involvement and our commitment to a local fellowship, a local spiritual community, a local church. Why do I say that? Well, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and these are verses that preachers love to use to try to make people feel guilty for not coming to church. I don't have a problem with that. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Hebrew writer says, and let us consider, note this, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us consider how we can build one another up to, to, to impact one another's lives in a way that leads to love and good deeds. So he says, let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So how, how do we understand those words? Well, how about, how about from this simple perspective? How do I spur others on toward love and good deeds? Well, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, by not giving up meeting together in the fellowship of the local church, which means we need genuine spiritual friendships all of us do. And those happen when we are faithfully committed to the local church. Your connection to the local church matters to God because of authority. I know authority is kind of a bad word to a lot of people in our culture today. We're rebelling against authority. I know things that have happened in recent years have really contributed to that, and I'm, I understand that completely. But the New Testament talks about spiritual authority in the local church. <clears throat> a couple of examples come from Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, seven says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. A little bit later in verse 17, we read, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you. Note this, as those who must give an account. 
do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. I can tell you, friends, that I have served over the last four, more than four decades, I have served alongside dozens and dozens of different men who have filled the role of elder in the local church. And I will tell you, and I I never really admitted this before last night, but I will tell you that for the longest time, when we come to that, in every church that I've served, even, even in my early years here, we come to that time of year when we had to consider who might be a candidate to serve uh, in the future, and someone's name would come up, for the longest time, I would always think in my mind, there's no way they'll say yes. There's no way they'll agree to this. They won't be interested. And they won't be interested because of how sobering a responsibility it is and how difficult a responsibility it can be. But I was almost always wrong in my assessment. And as a result of that, I have spent over 40 years of my life meeting with and studying with and seeking and praying and weeping with men who love Jesus and his church so much that they are willing to accept the role and the responsibility of being a spiritual overseer responsibility, with a responsibility for the souls of the people in their local church. And I'm telling you today, you need men like that in your life. Whether you know it or not, you need men like that in your life. That's the reason why God gave us the instruction related to the way the local church is supposed to be led. Your connection to the local church matters to God because of identity. And I'm gonna make this really simple. New Testament teaches us that as Christians, we bear the name of Jesus. We are one in Jesus. We've all been bought with the same price, the death of Jesus on the cross. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. I could go on and on, but that's our identity. If you're a Christian, that's your identity. And so... My question to someone who refuses to be a part of a local church or refuses to be a faithful part of a local church is, are you ashamed of belonging to Jesus? Because this is a part of your New Testament identity. Your connection to the local church matters to God because of truth. Being a faithful part of a local church is a truth issue because one of the primary purposes for the local church is to be a place where the truth of God's word is taught because it's the truth of God's word that shapes our convictions and our behaviors and the way we live our lives, at least it should be. So we need to be committed, all of us, to a local church that's committed to continuity and preaching the truth of God's word. And that's something that needs to happen week after week, month after month, year after year after year. 
And this is important for everyone connected to the local church from our youngest children to our oldest adults. That's a great heritage at Mount Pleasant Christian Church. Like many of you, I was just heartbroken to learn this past week of the, it's been a little bit more than a week now of the passing of Reggie Epps, who was the pastor at Mount Pleasant before I came in the fall of 2001. Reggie began his ministry here in 1992 left in the early part of 2001 to return to his hometown of Kansas City to take over his father's church, which at the time was known as Johnson County Christian Church, and after that became Legacy Christian Church. I have actually uh, known Reggie for more than 40 years. We have been friends for a long, long time, have a lot of history with him in a lot of different ways. So I can tell you a lot of things about him, those of you who don't know him, but the one thing that I would tell you about him is that he was a great preacher. He was a great Bible preacher. Just one of the best. And his great Bible preaching really shaped a lot of what happened in Mount Pleasant and continues to happen today. And that's the kind of church that everyone needs to look for, that everyone needs to be a part of. But over the past... uh, several years, there's been a change in the local church. There's been a lot of changes in the local church. Not all of it's been good. Pastors feel a lot of pressures, uh, pressure related to their churches. They feel a lot of pressure for their churches to grow. But oftentimes in the pursuit of that growth, the plan moves from pleasing God to pleasing men, and biblical sermons are replaced by inspirational talks, and genuine worship is replaced by entertainment because we view the people who come as consumers rather than people in, the need of, in need of the grace of God just like we are. But we're not consumers. You're not a consumer when it comes to your faith. This is not the pattern of the New Testament. You don't have a consumer mentality when it comes to commitment to the local church. You find a church where someone stands up every week and preaches the truth of God's word without apology. And you be faithful to that church. We're children of God. We're members of the body of Christ. We're worshipers in pursuit of the holiness of God and on and on and on. But we are not consumers. I have a deep, deep love for the church. I love the little church I grew up in and I've had the privilege of loving and being loved by three. Three great churches that I have been privileged to be the pastor of. I have learned that great churches are filled with believers who are deeply committed to Christ. And they reflect that commitment in every single part of their life, including their commitment and faithfulness to the church. I've always known that the day would come when I would step out of the role of being a senior pastor in a local church. And this is the church where that will happen. And I feel so fortunate and blessed to have been here for the past 22 years as the pastor. But this church, like every genuine Christian church, doesn't belong to me or whoever's name is on the register of 
pastor. It's God's church. It's Jesus's church. And it's our love and our commitment to him regardless of who is in a leadership role that keeps the church strong. And so my message to you as we close and the people who are leading our worship can come is if you're here today or you're listening to me somewhere today and you're not a Christian, you don't know and you don't have the have experienced the privilege of being a part of his church, then you need to give your life to Jesus today. Not waste another minute of living separate from him. You need to admit you're a sinner in need of the grace of God. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus and who he is and what he accomplished when he died on the cross in your place to pay the penalty for your sin and then rose from the dead, conquering death forever for everyone who puts their faith and trust in him. You need to repent. You need to turn away from sin and turn to God. You need to confess that faith out loud in the presence of witnesses. You need to obey the command of the Bible to be baptized. Let's get in the baptistry together today, you and me, so that you can be joined together with Jesus in a symbolic way in his death and his burial and his resurrection, expressing your faith that way through that obedience, marking the beginning of a brand new life. If you're here today or you're listening to me and today and you, you are a Christian, but if you're be honest, you know that you have not, you have not being, been faithful in your life to the local church. You've given in to a lot of different temptations that happen in this world today that have kept you from being a part of the body the way the New Testament instructs you to be a part of. Then what I would encourage you today to do is to repent and to return and to renew because the local church matters to God and the way you participate in it matters to God.